You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. This morning's reading comes from 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2a. You can find that on page 934 of the of the chairback Bible. And if you do not have a Bible of your own, we would love for you to take one of these to have uh, at home with you to just spend time within the word. So let's read together the word of the Lord. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering all these people here together in your name this morning. Um, Please open our hearts and give us uh, present minds as we hear the message that Dr. Ricky has so um, intentionally prepared for us here this morning. Um, God be with Dr. Ricky and Holy Spirit move through him as he brings the word. Please allow this message to do the work in each of us as needs to be done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Come on, friends. Good morning. Yes. So let's begin by answering a deep spiritual question that some of you may have. Why is the only African-American on staff preaching on a passage about slavery? All right. That's a great question. Some of you may feel a little uneasy about that, so let me try to put your mind at ease. As some of you know, I just completed my doctorate in music and theology. A few years back, I attended a music conference um, for one of the doctoral seminars, and I completed a research paper on racial disunity in the American church. One aspect of the paper was a study of the scripture passages that seemed to support the institution of slavery. So when today's text was scheduled, Pastor Jeremy asked if I would consider preaching the passage, and I agreed to do so. I feel honored to preach the word of the Lord. I feel very comfortable preaching this uncomfortable text. Friends, it's heavy, but that's okay. The spirit of the Lord is with us to illumine his word, to help us understand it so that we can embrace him. Amen. Here we go. There are many hard things in Christianity's history. Instances of atrocities and injustices committed in the name of the Christian God. The violent and bloody crusades by European Christians, the Catholics persecuting, torturing, and executing Jews, Muslims, and other Christians in the Inquisition, European Christians who colonized indigenous peoples in Africa, Asia, and the Americas, with forced conversion, forced labor, and the spread of diseases that decimated native populations. The Bible was used to justify ethnic-based enslavement and to propagate persecution, expulsion, and violence against Jews and other groups. The Bible was used to justify all of these repulsive acts by the people who committed them. 
many these many atrocities create an ethical objection to the Christian faith called defeater beliefs. A defeater belief is something perceived as evidence that a belief system is false. In this case, the deplorable actions of Christians throughout history in the name of the Christian God undermines Christianity's tenets, which leads some to conclude that Christianity cannot be true. The defeater belief in our illustration is that a religion that commits atrocities must be rejected. In hindsight, it seems clear to us that all those violent and oppressive actions were not Christian behaviors. We'd all agree. In fact, I'm sure we all find those actions of self-proclaimed Christians appalling. We all deeply regret these heinous actions of those Christians that contributed to the unbelief of many. But let me caution us to be careful of the sneaking belief that we are somehow inherently superior to our religious ancestors. I'd like to suggest we too display actions that create defeater beliefs for non-Christians. You may wrongly think that we aren't doing anything that repel non-believers. However, hypocrisy and moral standards, sexual abuse cover-ups, ungodly political and social alliances, failure to care for mistreated or marginalized communities, those sins repel non-believers. The church in our generation is guilty, we are guilty. You may wrongly think that our actions pale in comparison to the violent, bloody, and traumatizing historical injustices committed in the name of God. You may be appalled at the assertion, at the assertion that there could be a comparison at all. However, I gently contend that both those massive injustices and our small acts can contribute to the hardening heart of those who will then endure the fires of hell. The church in our generation is guilty. You are guilty. I am guilty. In today's text, we see the Apostle Paul addressing this very issue in the first century early church. Paul is confronting a certain disadvantaged group of Christians, the enslaved. The freedom and equality found in the gospel was radically disturbing the social structure normal to the first century Middle Eastern culture. The enslaved rightly understood that the gospel frees. So the question became, what do we do with this bondage? So Paul writes to instruct the enslaves to manage well their public and private behaviors by honoring their masters. The summation of his correction for them is our sermon in a sentence. Our public and private behaviors must always aim to guard the name of God and the gospel message. This call was for those in the first century early church and for us. So let's jump into this short but explosive passage and see the heart of God for us. We're going to walk through this text in three movements. The first, the disadvantage suffer bondage. Second, in bondage, the disadvantage must give honor. And finally, Christ frees the disadvantage to glorify him through bondage. Let's go. Point one, the disadvantage suffer bondage. Go with me to the text. 
Let's just look at the first few words. First Timothy 6, 1a reads, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants. Let's start right there. Some of your translations may say all who are under the yoke of slavery, and that is accurate. So whether you know it or not, we just hit a landmine, friends. Before we jump into the rest of the text, we need to understand the historical context of this phrase, all who are under the yoke of slavery. Okay, let's, let's hit pause before we do this deep dive, because I want to be clear, Paul did not intend 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2 to be an apologetic for biblical slavery. That would have been unnecessary information to convey to his original audience because they understood their own culture. But we must work to understand this morning's text, and we have to do that by understanding what they understood. We must know what slavery was and wasn't in the context of our passage. All right, hit play. So point one of our sermon is contextual catch-up, and here's the argument of point one. Biblical slavery does not equate to chattel slavery. Let me say a bit about chattel slavery. That may be a new term to some. There are many forms of slavery sort of on a spectrum from indentured servitude to the deplorable transatlantic slave model, which was chattel slavery. While all of these forms of slavery, all forms of slavery are to be condemned, all forms of slavery are not created equal. Some forms are more heinous, dehumanizing, and violent than others. Chattel slavery is the enslaving and owning of human beings and their offspring as property able to be bought and sold and forced to work without wages. Chattel slaves were separated from their ancestral birthplace, had no rights, and in most cases were treated violently. Just saying that definition and realizing that men, women, boys, and girls have had to suffer that treatment makes me physically uncomfortable. It would be an error to equate slavery in the Bible with chattel slavery. Though many believe this falsehood, Doing the contextual work of understanding slavery in Paul's day and God's commands concerning it won't just help us engage this text, but it will also help us battle the defeater belief in our culture that our God is a proponent of the evil practices of slavery, that in the Old Testament, the practice of chattel slavery was condoned and institutionalized. However, surprise, surprise, all we need to do is read the Bible for clarity about understanding biblical slavery. So let's do that together. In the Hebrew Bible, God is described as the righteous judge who upholds those who are disadvantaged, the poor, the oppressed, the weak, the orphan, and the widow, the immigrant, and the broken. Simultaneously, some scripture passages do seem to be advocating chattel slavery. Leviticus 25, 44 through 46, it'll be on the screen above, seems to be the strongest endorsement of chattel slavery in the Bible. The text says you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. 
You may also buy from among strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, you who have been born in your land. And they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. This passage creates a defeater belief for many opponents of the Christian faith. To proffer an accurate interpretation of this text, it must be considered in the context of the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. Leviticus is the third book in the set. You see, the Bible is one revelation from God to be understood as such. When God speaks decree, that word is settled and timeless. To ignore one passage when reading another is not how we approach any singular written communication, be it a book, a recipe, or instructions. Likewise, we approach God's word as a singular revelation. These next texts I'm about to fire off are on your handout. The position of the Pentateuch on forced slavery is seen in Exodus 21:16, which says, whoever steals or kidnaps a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. This sort of forced slavery of anyone, foreign or domestic, was prohibited by God. Exodus 21 gives no biblical justification to steal and force individuals into enslavement. According to this passage, every participant and proponent of the transatlantic slave trade was deserving of death. This passage shows us that God did not condone kidnapping and forced slavery. No, he was and is vehemently against it in the strongest of terms. And we bless the righteous name of God. The institution of slavery spoken of in the Pentateuch was voluntary slavery. Where do I get this? Leviticus 25, 39, and 40. When one found themselves devastated economically and unable to care for themselves, they were allowed to sell themselves to a person with the financial means to care for them in return for their work. Exodus 21, 20, 21 through 22 reminds the Israelites they were foreigners in Egypt and they should not mistreat or oppress. Exodus 21, 26 and 27 outlines how justice is to be determined for a master who abuses their servant. Another passage outlines provisions for their freedom. They could be bought back by a relative or by their own money. Concerning Leviticus 25:46, the last passage you saw on the screen, the passing of enslaved people on to one's children forever. The verse says, you may pass slaves on. Not that passing an enslaved person on to one's children was automatic, necessary, expected, or standard practice. In some cases, the original buyer of the servant could no longer support the enslaved, so moving the contract to their child was a means to continue the arrangement. The central issue here is that slavery was initiated by the slave 
not by the owners, and definitely not by force. The crimes of the transatlantic slave trade and the horrific culture of race-based American slavery that we're so familiar with was not permitted by God in the Pentateuch. Nowhere in the scriptures does it promote the kidnapping, chaining, whipping, sexually assaulting, or forced labor of any enslaved. In the Pentateuch, we see the condemnation of forced slavery and the regulation of voluntary slavery. Though forced slavery certainly existed during biblical times, and there is no doubt that there, would be mon that there were monstrous abuses in the context of voluntary slavery, the scriptures do not condone such unethical and tyrannical practices. This is the context of slavery in our text. It still isn't pretty, friends. It still is unimaginable for someone to have to sell their daughter or themselves into the hands of another for provision. But chattel slavery, it is not. Chattel slavery need not be a biblical defeat or belief for anyone in our culture if we rightly understand the scriptures. So quickly, a few pastoral applications for us from this deep dive into the context of today's text. Firstly, believe God is good and holy. My God is holy. My God is righteous in all his ways. He is right in all his decrees. He does not condone abuses of any kind. He is the righteous judge who upholds those who are disadvantaged. Against the backdrop of every evil we see in the world, every atrocity we experience, our God is at work now. Believe, believe and take courage. The psalmist says the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Upright is the Lord and with him there is no variation, no shadow of turning. He was and is and ever will be good. The word of the Lord says there is no unrighteousness in him. Whew. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Believe God is good. Believe he is holy. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We can trust his heart in the midst of bondage. We can trust his hand though wars rage. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This is my God. He is holy. He is good. Believe it. And we bless the righteous name of the Lord. Secondly, be biblically literate. Excuse my vernacular. We so lazy, friends. We so lazy. This isn't hard work. All we did was read the Bible in English. Boom, done, gone, defeat or belief, invalidated. Now, maybe it was just me that needed clarity, but I have a sneaking suspicion that this sermon is bringing clarity to more than just me. Maybe some of us didn't have an issue because we hadn't yet faced this defeat or belief in culture. Well, young people, get ready. It's the first thing you'll hear when you get to college. Be biblically literate. Do not recede. When we do not know what the word says, then we cannot confront lies with truth. 
we give in and we begin to believe that the culture's lies about our God and his word, then we hide, we avoid the conversation, we feel ashamed, giving away ground as if our God is not good and holy. Do not put hard questions out of your mind. Go face that biblical issue you are afraid of because you will soon find you have nothing to fear. the final very short pastoral application. And this might not be for everyone. Repent of unbelief. If you've tried to protect yourself and others from unbelief by avoiding hard questions about God and his word, repent. If you've buried your head in the sand in an effort to avoid unbelief, you are engaging in unbelief by not trusting the spirit to lead you to truth. Your questions are not wrong. The Lord welcomes questions. He wants us to bring him our doubts. He's our Abba Father. Not bringing them to him is what we repent of. So, Father, help our unbelief, and we repent of not trusting you. Now that we've done the work together of considering the social setting of biblical slavery in our passage, let's Continue on to point to, go with me to the text, 1 Timothy 6, all of verse 1 reads, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their masters as worthy of honor, so that the name of God and the teaching might, may not be reviled. As we've seen, biblical slavery doesn't equate to chattel slavery. Neither did Roman slavery, which is the province Timothy would have served in. In the Roman Empire, a home with slaves was as common as a garage is on our modern houses. Some slaves served in menial positions and some were well-educated, even doctors who served wealthy families. Slavery in Rome was not ethnically based. Roman slavery could be extremely brutal, but slaves had some degree of rights and were able to appeal to city authorities if they were being treated poorly. Slaves could hope to obtain freedom through one of several well-defined paths with protections under the law. With slavery this intertwined in the fabric of Roman society, disorderly conduct by a Christian slave could spell disaster for the church's reputation in the world. The gospel was fueling the desire for liberation in the hearts and minds of Christian slaves. These enslaved Christians were exhibiting social defiance in the name of the gospel and were being observed by unbelieving slave owners and those critical of the church. Their actions implied to the onlooking society that Christianity might be rejecting social authorities. A large segment of the public slowly beginning to reject social authorities is a recipe for disaster in any society. This reputation developing could be quite dangerous for the church at large. However, Paul's concern was that the spreading of such rumor could cause God to be slandered and his gospel to be distorted in a message of social or even political mutiny. So in verse one, Paul intensifies his command with the call for the enslaved to recognize their masters as worthy of all honor. Paul's instruction then to the enslaved Christians was that they must live and move in society in a way that comported with the culture 
and at the same time articulated and embodied God's manifest community of peace. The enslaved were to respect their masters, not because Roman slavery was an honorable institution, not because their masters were honorable, and not because Paul had no social conscience. Rather, the salvation of many through God's unvarnished gospel message must be the mission of every believer, no matter your social situation. I want to say that again. The salvation of many through God's unvarnished gospel must be the mission of every believer, no matter your social ranking. By grace, God invites the enslaved to join him on his mission to bring Christ's salvation to their lost masters and the broader society. That's a hard truth. Paul says, slaves who may be in some difficult situation, potentially violent situation with their masters, regard your master as worthy of all honor. Ouch. So, so how do we process this passage? To be honest, it's uncomfortable. I look at the text and I turn to the apostle, apostle Paul and ultimately the Lord, and with fear and trembling, I ask, are we patting slaves on the head and saying, be a good little slave? The injustice of the institution you're in isn't as important as evangelism. And herein lies the continued defeater belief that our God is a proponent of the evil practices of slavery and that in the New Testament, the practice of slavery was condoned and preserved. Why didn't Paul say in slavery now? Instead, he said, give all honor to your master. We hear this and I acknowledge, okay, friends, we forget this. The gospel is an alien message to our hearts and ears. Even we who are believers who say that we believe freedom in the gospel does not mean health, wealth, prosperity, nothing missing, nothing broken, as they say. But when we arrive at such an uncomfortable text, our hearts naturally want to believe that the gospel is about immediate earthly liberty. And that's not a bad longing. We don't want anyone to suffer. However, the reality of this broken world is that suffering and injustice does exist. We don't get to escape the fallen world, friends, not until Christ returns and restores all things. Gospel believers, in many ways, live lives of spiritual liberty within earthly chains, bound in poverty, struggling with thorns in our flesh, debilitating illnesses, unsafe surroundings. The list of Christian martyrs is increasing daily. Last year, over 5,000. There's only 365 days in the year. The proponents of our faith who struggle with this defeater belief and the enslaved Christians in our text have something in common, a misunderstanding of the gospel. The toppling of institutions and governments was not the immediate 
priority of Jesus's earthly ministry. Jesus taught his disciples this lesson. It would have been a gospel perversion for Paul to become a militaristic revolutionary in his response to the evil cultural strongholds of his day. This is not what Jesus did when he was on earth and we don't get to shape God's gospel. Paul is teaching here that gospel behaviors accompany gospel believers everywhere. And that everywhere may be really, really dark places. In the book, in every book in the New Testament, God promises us that we will suffer as Christ suffered. But I believe we're more comfortable with the suffering of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ than our own. Jesus, who became a slave to the powers of sin and death, dying for the sins of humanity. He, Jesus, worthy of only honor, receiving our dishonor. Jesus, who was treated like chattel, voluntarily leaving his home in heaven to be abused, spat upon, whipped, reviled, and killed. He, Jesus, who was despised and rejected, acquainted with grief who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. He, Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He, Jesus, became true slave to the wrath of God the Father, taking our punishment and giving us his purity, reward, and honor. The gospel breaks our spiritual chains of sin and death, and we follow Jesus Believers follow Jesus even into suffering. Paul's gospel aim in this text was not the immediate elimination of the struggle of the enslaved or any other group of disadvantaged believers, but to remind us that the gospel calls us to honor God, being the salt of the earth in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. Gospel behaviors accompany gospel believers into the walls of poverty or the comforts of affluence. Gospel behaviors accompany gospel believers into the heights of authority or the humility of servitude. We are never to abandon gospel behaviors, not because God calls evil institutions good, but because God, gospel believers empowered by the Holy Spirit can never be far from gospel behaviors no matter the condition. This is the call of those believers, and this is our call. Though we've mostly focused on the spiritual nature of, God's, of Paul's instruction, the apostle's teaching is also socially reformative for his culture. Concerning the specific circumstance of slavery, Paul restricts the enslaved's giving of honor to their own master. This limits the application to the household only. This is a radical detail. Paul is saying to the enslaved Christians, you are not to consider yourselves second-class citizens in the Roman Empire. Honor your own master within their household, beyond which equality, liberty, liberty, and autonomy are yours within the church community and gradually within the broader societal setting. In 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul admonishes slaves to take advantage of any opportunity for freedom. So what does this all mean for us? 
First, our text calls us to give all honor. What might he be calling you to endure socially? Who might he be calling you to honor? An employee, a spouse, a teacher, a parent, some other authority that may not deserve honor? Is there a secular institution that you are part of where you can exalt the name of God and exemplify the truth, wisdom, and glory of the gospel merely by how you show all honor? Let's ask the Spirit to show us if we have an authority problem. Spirit, we ask, show us where and whom to give all honor for the praise and glory of your name and teachings. A quick aside, let me say what the scriptures are not asking you to do. And I say this gently with a pastoral heart. If you are in an abusive situation, while this text does not grant you license to sin by any means, it is also not commanding you to remain in an unsafe space. Satan is a deceiver, and he would love for you to hear this message and think the text is calling you to exhibit honor by staying in an abusive space. Point one has already shown us God's decrees for those who mistreat the and oppress. There is wrath to come for those grave sins. Our God does not condone any kind of abuse, we pray you reach out for help. Our ministry teams are ready to serve, protect, counsel, and provide. Another point of application, let's see the name of God and the gospel as greater than our comforts. That to suffer for and with Christ is superior to all the freedom society offers. The hollowing of the name of God and the spreading of the gospel is worth my inferiority. That is so countercultural to the American way. I believe if we follow our Savior Jesus in his walk of submission, the Spirit will give us vision to see gospel mission in whatever position he's allotted for us. And may that vision empower us to believe Jesus is better. Final point of application, I believe the Spirit is calling us from this text to consider the power dynamics in our lives and what public behaviors we, we may be exhibiting that revile the name of God and the gospel. What defeater beliefs am I fueling that will repel non-believers? Paul is clear, our behavior have a significant on whether or not non-believers consider our God in teachings as admirable. Let's ask the Spirit to show us where our behaviors are out of step with the gospel. To the non-believers here, we ask, dialogue with us. I believe the Spirit will show believers where our behaviors are out of step with the gospel, and I believe one way he'll do that is through you engaging with us. But I must warn you, non-believer, the scriptures are clear. No one will have an excuse when we stand before the judgment throne of God. Saying poor Christian behaviors kept you from the truth will not spare you the wrath of God for your sin. Though we may contribute, you are ultimately responsible before God. Jesus has already paid the price. My friend, I plead with you, receive his grace. 
the apostle now shifts his focus to the interpersonal relationships of Christians within this dynamic. I'm going to follow his outline. Let's go to the final and shortest point in our sermon. Chapter 6, verse 2 reads, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So in verse 2, we see that the defiance of these gospel-liberated enslaved Christians was also at play in the households of Christian masters. This disregard in Paul's opinion amounts to a show of contempt. Again, unbelievers observing households disrupted by Christian slaves who claim some sort of gospel privilege would conclude that the foreign Christian teaching underlines the disturbance. This verse shows us the explosive power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. While the enslaved Christians thought their newfound freedom in Christ would grant them personal benefit in the household, the gospel flips that reality. Paul describes the slave's extraordinary service as a benefit received by the masters. The most critical thing to see here is that the benefits of the gospel did not function as the slaves had imagined namely as grounds for disregarding the master-slave hierarchy. Rather, it places the masters as fellow believers into the category of those to whom slaves and Christians must render superior service. However, Paul does not stop there. He has instruction for the master. Paul teaches that the master should view the labors of the slaves not as demanded responsibility, but as acts of kindness. This verse is more radical than it may first appear. Although Paul does not aggressively attack the institution of slavery, his use of acts of kindness reminds the master that the slaves ultimately are not slaves and should not be treated as such. Here's the point. Gospel equality transcends class distinctions. Now, this text is not saying that the gospel dismantles all hierarchical authorities. Social stratification, or, or in layman's terms, the social pecking order in itself is not wrong and will still exist. But the gospel has entered the world and raised all our worth to level. Christ, the true honor giver, has highly honored the disadvantaged even in their bondage. The disadvantaged can glorify him in their social chains. Christ, the true example of humility, has called the masters to follow his example and humble themselves to Christian brotherhood, even as they receive the excellent service of their social station. Non-Christian historians even point out that all of the in the Roman, in, of all the slaves in the Roman Empire, Christian slaves received the best social regard within their own religious group. One historian stated that Christian slaves received equality, which is unheard of. Though again, here in point three, we mostly focus on the spiritual nature of Paul's instruction. 
the apostles' teaching is also socially reformative in his culture. The gospel did and still does bring radical social change to the world. The idea of inalienable rights, the field of medicine and hospitals, the rise of advanced institutions, the fierce fighting of those in the civil rights movement for the image of God to be honored in them, and yes, even the diminishing of the institution of slavery were all direct results of the gospel and Christian teachings in the world. Even secular historians would acknowledge this. But the key is Christ works from the inside out. He changes the hearts of his people, and then through us and by his power, he changes the world. Two simple short applications here from the text. The first is to serve. If you find yourself in the socially inferior position, being subject to another Christian, grant them the great benefit of your excellent service. Honor the gospel. Be careful to not abuse gospel liberty as a means to take advantage of other Christians who may be in authority over you. Be careful not to seek to raise your social station, station improperly at the expense of another Christian brother. Final application, and final actually means final this time. Choose humility. If you find yourself in the socially superior position, having authority over another Christian, recall the example of Jesus who emptied himself and took the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death on a cross and be empowered by the spirit to follow and choose humility. Do you pull your, do you puff your chest up in pride as others serve you Christian? Do you despise social positions of inferiority and, uh, and dishonor those who serve in them? I'm sure we can all repent of looking down on those who have less social status because in God's community, all are welcome and have an equal seat at the table. As I conclude, my mind considers all the difficult things happening in the world, wars, economic issues, political unrest and instability. This text calls us to work to ensure our lives and witness for Christ is not rejected by those around us, in authority over us, and watching our interactions with one another. First Timothy 6, 1 through 2a helps us conceive just how crucial the public and private behaviors are to the receiving of the gospel. May Christ's light shine in the darkness through each of us and not be hidden. Amen, let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that stretches our minds and calls us into hard places to trust you more. Spirit, we thank you that you have given us the ability to hear and receive truth. Christ, we thank you that the finished work of your gospel is worthy of every sacrifice. God, use us to bring the lost to your kingdom. Move us when we are in the way. We pray now for all those who find themselves in bondage, be it here in this room, 
in our community or around the world. Free them, we plead. Father, you hate oppression more than we ever can, so we give these things to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.